Fair Music. Out of the Box with Joey Watson. On FBI 94.5. Hello there, FBI Radio listener. Joey Watson here. You are listening to Out of the Box every Thursday from midday to one. I get to sit down with one person and rummage through their record collection while pulling out defining stories from their life. Today, Stuart Coop. When Stuart moved from the northern Tasmanian town of Launceston to Adelaide in the mid-70s, he was a representative squash player with a passion for music and an unlikely passion for radical politics. It was not long before he fell into the world of music. His own zine, Roadrunner, was a quiet step into a career that would see him come face to face with the likes of Bob Dylan and Mick Jagger, manage Paul Kelly and the Hoodoo Gurus, and promote acts as varied as Bruce Springsteen, Lucinda Williams and Harry Dean Stanton. In more recent times, he has taken up radio, his latest incarnation at this time on a Tuesday is hosting Tune Up, a show dedicated to covers. Due to that and many other shows he has hosted over the years, he is often referred to as the godfather of FBI radio. Stuart, the godfather, welcome to Out of the Box. Uh, Joey, I'm blushing, but that's okay on radio, <laughs> isn't it? How are you doing? <laughs> I'm very well. Stuart, I, I know... Uh, that you were once the host of this show. Did, did that make make, uh, make choosing your songs any easier, any easier a task? No, it makes it harder and harder. Um, it's uh, because you go, oh, okay, five or six songs to encapsulate, um, says he joking, my 25 years on the planet. Just kidding. Uh, no, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's really hard. I mean, it, it's like I, I totally sympathise with anyone who's coming on Tune Up, for instance, and I say, well, tell me your 10 favourite cover versions. And I know already they're going to spend an entire week agonising. And they will have a list of 150 and then they will cut it down to 10 and then as they're coming into FBI they'll go, no, I want to play this, I want to play that, I want to change my Mm -hmm. entire list. How do you you listen to music? I I would be shocked if you didn't have an extensive vinyl collection. Look, I I do have an extensive vinyl collection. I sold a lot of vinyl uh, back in the late 1990s. Look, I'm not one for looking back, but occasionally I go, what was I thinking? But I was thinking what a lot of people were thinking at the time and I had most things that I wanted on CD. I listen um, all different ways. I, I At home we have two turntables uh, which are constantly in use in different rooms. Uh, I listen to CDs, I listen to the radio, you know, I stream radio from around the world uh, and uh, I, I listen to a lot of stuff digitally, um, you know, via, via the computer. Um, so it's, you know, I've never been one of those people that goes, oh, it's got to be on vinyl otherwise it's not great Mm. you know i want to listen to songs and i want to listen to vocal performances or instruments being played really well and i honestly have never cared less and i you know one there are many things that will rile me but uh, you know in a gentle sort of way but one is this oh it's got to be on vinyl otherwise it doesn't sound any good you know there are things that sound terrible on vinyl that sound better on cd and uh, and vice versa sure well let's let's go back to the beginning (laughs) a time when uh vinyl was king you grew up in the northern Tasmanian town of Launceston. Do you remember your childhood fondly? Uh, yeah, pretty well. I mean, I you know I had an idyllic, um, you know, nineteen sixties. Um, you know, I, I was 
God, I was born in the 1950s, uh, and so yes, I, I grew up in the in the 1960s. You know, and it was a it was a a great uh, time. You know, I I had supportive parents. I I had some pretty amazing school teachers. Uh, you know, I, I remember very fondly uh, one of them, a, a guy called John Woodruff, who encouraged me to start my first magazine, you know, when I was, I think, 14 or 15 at school, and it was called Labyrinth. It was really just an excuse for me to write about music, and we stuck some sports results and school news in, in the back. But, you know, he, he during school holidays, you know, travelled. I remember one trip he went to, to England, and, uh, you know, he came back and he bought me a Bruce Springsteen record and some other bits and pieces. So, um, you know, blessed with a, with a, with, with a good education, um, and, you know, I, I was already very hooked on on music. I mean, well, you, I want to ask you about that. Your your, your love of music came from a, a traveling European record dealer from Hobart, and his name was uh, Stefan. Can you introduce me to him? Yes, yeah, Stefan Markovic. Uh, and if you're streaming and listening in Hobart, Stefan, hello. Um, <laughs> Stefan still runs a record store in uh, in Hobart in Tasmania. And uh, look, I listened to a lot of radio um, growing up. Uh, on those crystal radios that you used to have to connect to a telephone and you'd put you know put a headphone a headpiece in and, and listen to the radio um, but Stefan was was a, a very early importer of of records uh, and he used to travel around Tasmania I mean I, what I mean is he really he moved from Hobart and came up to Launceston <laughs> he may have gone gone to birdie or something if there was but um, but and he he sold import records and I I bought a lot of records for from him, uh, and, and I remember he—he he, he was a really, and he's a big, loud fervently passionate man you know um, and you know he would dance around and sing along to songs and 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 and, and he was very persuasive you know if, if he told you that you really needed to own a particular record you were sort of you were going okay Stefan I'll buy it okay how much is it seven dollars okay um, so look you know uh, things I remember he turned me on to a lot of, of, of music that I still listen to strangely enough English Scottish and Irish folk music that despite all my years of listening to avant-garde jazz and punk rock and everything else, I will still go back to some of those records I bought in the 70s. But I bought things like Slade Alive and, you know, Rod Stewart records when we loved Rod Stewart and mm. all sorts of things from but him. But that, that, that love of music that Stefan so kindly facilitated for you as a young child was uh, was only to be rivaled by a passion for the, the sport squash. Mm. Uh, but you had to bring the two together somehow. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, well, I... I I, I, I grew up playing tennis and I wasn't a particularly good tennis player and one day it was, it was raining and my tennis coach said let's go in uh, into the squash courts and, and hit some squash balls around and I, I became addicted I loved squash uh, uh, you know it was like human chess to me that's how I always thought of it you know chess uh, squash played well is, is a beautiful um, quite precise intricate uh, sport also apparently the second most strenuous sport known to person kind uh, rowing is the one before in case you were wondering wow. and um um, and so I, I loved it. I used to go and work at the local squash centre in Launceston, taking bookings uh, and also teaching people, you know, the, the basics of, of playing squash. I did this at weekends. Uh, and this was valuable listening time, of course, that sure. was being devoted to working and playing squash. So I used to have one of those portable record players that you could put underneath your arm, you know, like a little suitcase, uh, which I'd acquired somewhere along the line. So I used to go in and work at the squash centre with a whole pile of LP 
records under my arm and my record player. So people would come in to play squash and I'd be sitting there listening to, I remember Leonard Cohen's Songs of Love and Hate was a big record then. I might have been listening to Roxy Music or uh, The Faces or something like that. So I'd spend the whole day at the squash centre playing music, um, taking bookings, teaching people how to play uh, and then I'd get paid whatever it was for a day, you know, $20 or $15 or something like that. Uh, and then as soon as school was out on Monday or Tuesday, I'd head down to Wilson Co., the local record shop, and spend that money buying more records. Mm, and, uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, you, you, were, you were pretty good. So, so Squash kind of took you on the road a little bit. You managed to tra- travel around a bit. And, and you combine that with music. Can, can you tell me about the time you went to see Lou Reed yeah, uh, in look the early at, 70s yes. on, on a Squash tour? Yes, I, I played squash for uh, for Tasmania in the Australian Championships twice. Uh, once I went to Perth, and I still have the loving spoonful records that I bought when I snuck off from training uh, to go record shopping um, in Perth. And in Adelaide, I, I was there for the Australian Championships at the same time as Lou Reed was playing in, in uh, Adelaide. And a, a good friend of mine, John Wood, uh, David Woodhall, I should say, uh, who was working at, uh, at the ABC radio then, uh, had tickets for Lou Reed. But it was the night I had to go to this little cocktail party reception. You know, I'm 17, I think. Uh, and I've got a, a lovely green blazer and a pair of trousers on, uh, you know, and I'm looking like a kid who's just gone to a squash reception. <laughs> and there was no time to go and change to to and get to this concert. So I had to go from the squash reception straight to Lou Reed. Now, Lou Reed was at his most outrageous, you know, I think 74 we're talking. Um, and, you know, it was a very hip counterculture, switched on Adelaide audience. And here's timid little Stuart who's... Uh, what had I seen before that? The first show I saw was The Seekers when I was nine. I'd seen Donovan and I'd seen some local bands around Launceston and bits and pieces. But, you know, this was like Lou Reed, you know, with the, sh- with the bleach blonde hair. And I remember distinctly at the end of the show, Lou went to walk off stage and there was a wall and there was a door. And Lou walked straight into the wall. You know, it was, it was, and it was, no. it was, it was just that that time. But I, I felt like <laughs> such a dweeb. I mean, I was so excited, but I went, oh god, I, I must stand out, like you know, whatever. But hey, I got to see. I can imagine Lou Reed. The, on the Venn diagram of squash enthusiasts and Lou Reed enthusiasts, you'd probably be pretty lonely in between the two, perhaps. But yeah, it's <laughs> pretty exciting. Well, look, it's it's um. It's uh, something must have been in the water in Adelaide because you you end up matriculating to Flinders University. Can you can you tell me why uh, why Adelaide? Why not why not a hunger for the for the big smokes of city Sydney or Melbourne? Uh, mainly, you know, I got accepted into the University of Tasmania, which was in Hobart, and I really didn't want to go to Hobart. I mean, the, you know, there's a theory about growing up in places like Launceston. You know, if you if you're still there when you're 18 or 19, you'll probably be there for the rest of your life, and I. I didn't want to be there for the rest of my life. I wanted to go and see Lou Reed and do things like that. <laughs> Lou Reed didn't come to Launceston. Uh, so I literally, Joey, sat uh, in the Launceston Library and in those days you could read through the handbooks for every university and look at their syllabuses, get a feel for what the university was all about. And so I, you know, I would have read the Sydney Uni Handbook and you know Monash Uni and all that, and then but uh, but I I hit Flinders University, you know much newer university than Adelaide Uni, uh, and uh, it had this 
this syllabus and that spoke to me and I did a little bit of homework I found out that you know that there'd been um, you know the students had stormed the chancellery and and had a sit-in and it had a reputation as being the most radical university in Australia at the time what, what made you hungry for that radicalism oh, I mean, I was, that, was that, that a, there a thing in Launceston for, for radical was there room for that oh look I think there was a thing in me that I've never quite been able to pinpoint you know I I, I remember at uh, you know at school when I was about 15 or something you know doing a school project on censorship you know and you know and and my t- you know and 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 being my teacher saying well you know do you really expect me to to mark this you know would your parents like to see what you're delving into and and uh, and I remember when I was in an economics class and and I and I didn't know what you know, communism was. I didn't know who Karl Marx was or who Engels was, but I got up in the economics class and spouted some argument about, you know, well, you know, workers should be better represented and, you know, and people that make all the money should distribute it more equally to to the people that create, you know, and, and the teacher said, you're spouting communism, Coop, you know, and I had no idea what I was talking about. But but clearly uh, there, was, there was something there, there was something in me that seemed to be met by what was offered at Flinders Uni and it was you know I I had you know I didn't finish my degree but I you know I remember you know I still have uh, a, a very good friend uh, who Murray Bramall who who was my my English tutor and I remember the first class uh, tutorial we went to and, it, and he said oh you know has anyone here read any poetry you know and there's dead silence you know except I put my hand up and he says oh who have you read and I go well you know um, Alan Ginsberg and Gregory Corso you know the poets who I'd started reading when I was in Launceston. So, you know, we we got on and, uh, you know, and as I said, he's still a friend. You know, it was, it was a very left-leaning um, philosophy department. You know, it was a, it was a, a Marxist, Leninist, Maoist, um, you know, so, so I came out of university thinking that, you know, Mao was one of the great philosophers of all time and Stalin was a great revolutionary leader and a whole bunch of things that, um, that you know, history has revised, but... But, uh, you know, in the 70s, that's that's what I was taught. What That's what I learned. Um, and whether I, you know, was subsequently proved wrong, you know, was, was stuff that I thought this makes sense to me. Sure. I, 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 I want to circle back uh, for our first <laughs> track. I suppose we could play um, any number of tracks from, from this period of your life. But uh, why not go to your first record that you ever ever acquired? Yeah, the first the first record I, I bought, I'd saved up. I think it was a dollar five or the equivalent of a dollar five. Uh, and I I had money to go and buy a record. So uh, I, I don't think I hesitated. I just bought the Easy Beats Friday on my mind. Monday morning feels so bad Everybody seems to nag me Coming Tuesday I feel better Just don't go
was the easy beats and friday on my mind brought on to out of the box by fbi radio regular music industry giant my guest Stuart coop Stuart, uh after a stint uh at flinders university in adelaide uh in 1978 you get a call from ram magazine you'd already started to fall into the world of music journalism um in sydney and they they offer you a job uh, was was that something that you were very ready to accept? Was was there a, was there a, a moment where you did, where you kind of knew that music journalism was what you wanted to do for your, for your for your living? I didn't know if I was going to do it for a living, Joey, but I certainly knew I wanted to do it. You know, at, at Flinders Uni, I'd become one of the editors of of Empire Times, which is the uni paper, and I'd put John Lydon on the cover. You know, it was the year of punk rock. Uh, then I'd started a fanzine called Street Fever, and and a group of us started a magazine called Roadrunner. Uh, which was, uh, you know, uh, basically yeah, a, a contemporary music magazine. Uh, and I'd also been freelancing for RAM magazine, Rock Australia magazine, which was, the, you know, the dominant music magazine of that time. Um, and uh, and I used to j- joke with uh, Anthony O'Grady, the, the editor, who sadly passed away um, you know, two weeks ago, uh, you know, here we, brash and arrogant and young. Here we come, Anthony, we're about to take over. Roadrunner's the future of music journalism in in Australia. And he rang me one day. Uh, uh, he called everyone, pretty much every male that he knew, dear boy. And so he rang, dear boy, how would you like to come to Sydney and work for a real music magazine? Uh, and to answer your question, did I hesitate? Absolutely not, because this was a chance to come to Sydney, a chance to work for Ram Magazine, a chance to be paid. How, how did you resolve the issue of transporting your, your belongings from, uh, from Adelaide to Sydney? Uh, well, I said to Anthony, how, how do I get, you know, I'm, I can fly. I'll be there in a couple of days. Uh, but I said, I've got the whole bunch of junk here. That, uh, and he said, don't worry, dear boy, leave it with me. And uh, he called up the Angels, the band, the Angels, as uh, management. They were playing in Adelaide around that time. Uh, they talked to the road crew who, uh, when they finished their shows in Adelaide, put the PA, the band's musical gear, and my worldly possessions in the back of the van uh, and drove them from Adelaide to Sydney, where I collected them in Sydney. <laughs> Perhaps a taste of things to come. Maybe. I, uh, I want to talk to you about a couple of your experience. I mean, there's a, there's a whole host of them that we could go through. But why don't we start uh, in, in the late 70s, uh, walking through King's Cross with Tom Waits? 
Yes, look, I, I, I had, uh, you know, because of RAM initially, and then I moved on to the Sun-Herald newspaper where I was the columnist for, for 10 years, uh, you know, I, I had an absolute uh, great grounding and great opportunities. Now, the first tour I went on was with Graham Parker and The Rumour. You know, I went on tour with Kiss in the late 70s. I couldn't stand Kiss, but it was a great experience. Uh, and then Tom Waits was one of, you know, these people just happened. It, it was, it, when you say to people now, oh, I interviewed, uh, you know, Tom Waits, and we went and hung out and stuff like that, they go, wow. Wow. And, and it was kind of like it was just, oh, we, yeah, it's Tom Waits, it's this person, this person. So with Tom Waits, I, I interviewed him twice, uh, two times that he came to Australia. And, uh, and I remember the first time, because I always like, tried to get artists outside of the hotel, because, you know, it's a boring, sterile environment. And I'd try and, you know, if, if they were up for it, remove them from that environment. So I, I said to Tom, you know, you want to go for a walk? Um, uh, you know, sure. You know, and uh, and we we were at the Siebel Townhouse, which was in Elizabeth Bay uh, near King's Cross. So we, um, you know, we walked. There are photos in existence of, of, taken by the Ram photographer of us, the two of us walking through. Uh, and another great journalist, Andrew McMillan, was with me for this walk. And uh, and we're walking uh, up through the cross, past all the strip clubs and the sex shops. And there's fantastic photos of Tom, you know, pretending to have his arm around a fluoro outline of a woman <laughs> at strip clubs and things like this that. Is so, Tom Waits. No, no, notoriously hard to interview. What, what 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 did you do? What was the trick? Uh, look, I mean, the the trick with with all of interviewing all rock stars, I think, Lou Reed was an exception, um, is to try, I find to try and get them not to talk about music. They're sick of talking about music. Music is what they they do. And and also, I've always thought it's fairly boring for a reader. You know, tell me about what was it like in the studio? Who cares? You know, the artist is happy to have been out of the studio. And, uh, you know, do you enjoy touring? Of course, that, you know, and all that. So I always try, I tried to talk to them about, you know, books, about films, you know, mm. I talked to Mick Jagger about cricket. He was right. Well, can, can we can we jump to that? I mean, can we move from this is uh, we're flying now uh, forward ten years and to the other side of the world from Kings Cross to Paris and um, yeah, a conversation with Mick Jagger about cricket. Can you tell me about about that story? Yeah, I mean, I just come back from being in America with uh, with Paul Kelly and the Messengers, who I was managing and uh, as well as writing at the same time. And the, and there was a call from Mick Jagger. He had a solo record out, you know, saying that Mick Jagger was doing interviews. Did I want to do one? And I said, sure. When's he going to call? They said he's not calling. Uh, he, he's doing them in Paris next week, uh, so you have to be in Paris, and we're not paying. Do you want to do it? And so you know, Sun Herald got me an air ticket. Uh, Mick Jagger had actually come from London. He was staying at the most expensive hotel in Paris, as you would for the day, uh, the George V Hotel. And uh, and look, Jagger, I mean, I walked out of it thinking, I've just interviewed one of the most famous people on the planet. And boy, he's not that interesting. Wow. Uh, but we, you know, we, we had good chats about the cricket. I knew he liked cricket. I knew a bit about cricket. But there were two funny things that happened, Joey. Uh, we wanted to get a photo of me and Mick with Paris as the backdrop. Mm. And so we went out, photographer was there, we're on the balcony, and Mick refuses to have his photo taken until they can get him a stool to stand on. 
Right now, I'm not the tallest person in the world. I'm just <laughs> under six feet, right? But Jagger was so worried that he would look like a short ass standing <laughs> next to me. We had to get this footstool so that he's he's up a little higher. So that was one thing. And then, of course, he'd come from London. So he, mine was the last interview of the day. He flew back to London. I was going to go from Paris back to America to catch up with Paul Kelly. And and I said to the guy from the record label, I said, um, can you recommend a, a cheap hotel where I can stay tonight. I'm in, a, I'm in the suite at the most expensive hotel in Paris, right? There yeah. is room after room after room. And I said, look, I need a cheap hotel. I'm leaving tomorrow morning. And he said, well, Mick's gone. He said to stay here. <laughs> so I spent the night in Mick Jagger's oh. hotel room with a very, very well-stocked uh, bar fridge. And uh, you'd, ha- you'd have to say that an experience like that in music journalism today would be almost unheard of. Look, do, uh, yeah. Do you, I mean, do you do you, do you uh, resent or uh, the way that that the internet has changed music journalism, or the way that music journalism has changed over time? Uh, look, I, I th- and look, I was lucky lucky enough, Joey, to you know to grow up, you know, in a great era of of music journalism. You know, it wasn't all done via Skype. It wasn't all done on on the telephone, writers, you know, our editors were, were inspired or influenced by the new journalism uh, movement. You know, they, they allowed us to be uh, hopefully not too self-indulgently characters, you know, in our interaction with the people that we were interviewing. They encouraged good writing. Um, you know, look, I still find uh, some really great writing online. But as you say, that 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 time of, you know, saying to Tom Waits, let's go for a walk through King's Cross or, you know, hanging out with Mick Jagger or doing all of the other things that we were lucky enough to do. Um, you know, I, I always consider myself just incredibly lucky. You know, I look back at those experiences and go, boy, right place, right time. And I had, the, you know, I had an ability, uh, which I think is so important for, for writing and, and music journalism. You know, I could think on my feet. Um, I, I never went into an interview with a list of questions. Just, mm. you know, just we, we made it up. Sure. Yeah. Uh, uh Probably the uh, music journalism experience that I'm most excited <laughs> to talk to you about is uh, is Bob Dylan. Uh, let's take let's take us to the first time, and this is in Auckland, and uh, uh, this is the, the the one time you met him face to face. Can you yeah. can you take me through that? Yeah, I, I've interviewed him twice. 1992 was the next time that was on the phone, but 86 I was on that tour. It was the Bob Dylan tour with uh, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, and uh, and so initially I went to New Zealand so that I could report back on those shows to Australia because um, he was he was doing New Zealand first, of course. And I'm standing there in Auckland one night and Michael Godinski, one of the promoters, just comes up to me and out of the blue says, oh, you're coming back in my car tonight. And, and I go, why am I coming back in your car tonight? He said, oh, well, you're talking to Dylan. Like, no warning, no nothing. You know, you're talking to Dylan, my hero. So, right. so after this point, you, you'd, what, had, had you been following him on the tour? Had yeah, you, so, I'd, so you'd I'd been see, in proximity to him, but you hadn't actually... Yeah, I'd seen the shows. Said, hey, I'd, I'd, I'd been, you know, I'd watched sound checks. You know, I'd done all of that. But, you know, the word was Dylan's not talking. You know, don't even think about it. But I think tickets were not selling quite as well in Australia as what they were hoping. So pressure was put on 
Bob to do one interview. So I go back to the the hotel with Gadinsky and and, and Dylan hated this but because uh, you know we, we were kept waiting for a couple of hours and and Michael said to me you know, I said why are we being kept waiting and he said well you know Dylan likes to call his kids you know after the after the show and uh, and uh, my heart. Well I thought it was a really wonderful thing to do but of course when I put this in the story Dylan apparently got really grumpy with with Gadinsky for telling me this. Anyhow, um, Michael and I do, shall we say, a little bit of recreational partying. And, um, <laughs> and then, so by the time it, I get the call to go down and, um, and talk to Dylan, one could say that I was in a slightly heightened st- state of mind. Uh, so I, I walk into the bar and, and, and I've got like a hundred other people, journalists and radio people and whatever, staring at me from the other side of the glass, like wanting to hate me because this is the only interview at this stage that Dylan is doing and I'm the guy, all right? So, you know, I sit down with Dylan and his manager, Elliot Robertson, and it's really obvious that Dylan doesn't want to do an interview. You know, he's not in the mood. And Dylan, you know, the next time I couldn't shut him up. This time, everything I tried, you know, I asked him about Greenwich Village, I asked him about Allen Ginsberg, I asked him about Lenny Bruce, you know, a whole lot of things that I thought he would warm to. It was just like a dead bat, you know. He was, he was, he was, he, he clearly was just wanting to leave. And then, um, then I thought, okay, all right, let's try something. Yeah, and uh, and I'd read an interview with Spin in Spin magazine recently, where Dylan had said that if he could have his time over, he would have liked to have been a music journalist. And the guy at Spin magazine had said, "Who would you most like to interview?" And Dylan had said, "I would have loved to have had a conversation with Hank Williams." Wow! So I said to Dylan, "Like, just imagine, you know, Hank Williams was was sitting here now. What would you want to know?" Now maybe my heightened state was fairly obvious to Bob, right? Because he just looked me in the eye for what seemed like forever. It was probably only about 30 seconds. It felt to me like about five minutes. Totally pinned me. And he said, I'd want to know where he got his drugs from. <laughs> it was great. It was priceless. <laughs> Stuart, what Bob Dylan song should we play off the back of that? Uh, look, uh, I could have, as you know, Joey, um, picked hundreds of them, but uh, let's try Positively 4th Street.
Not to editorialise, but I am grinning as I back announce Bob Dylan and Positively 4th Street. One of my favourite songs handed to me by promoter, manager, FBI radio host and hero Stuart Coop, my guest on Out of the Box. Stuart, you've promoted a shopping list of international artists in Australia and abroad, everyone from Guy Clark to Lucinda Williams to Kinky Friedman, but I want to start with blues revivalist Chris Whiteley. For this story, take me and the listener to the security gates at Auckland Airport in the early eighties. Yeah, Chris Whitley was uh, that. That was uh, that was a very early tour and a great baptism into the vagaries of international artist touring. So, Chris Whitley is uh, coming to Australasia in conjunction with I had a par- partner in Sydney and with some friends in New Zealand. So he was coming into New Zealand, then coming to Australia. That's all fine uh, until, as you say, he arrives at uh, Auckland Airport and he gets busted. He's got a joint in his boot. We'd arranged for bags of pot to be waiting for him, but the brain surgeon decided that he'd bring a joint. And, and you know, the way I look at it is, you know, if you've got a joint in your pocket, you know, you can reasonably say, I was at a party last night in LA, someone must have left it for me. When it's in your boot, you packed it, right? You know, you knew it was there. So anyhow, so, so Whitley is deported and sent back to Los Angeles. And we're determined to try and get him to come to Australia. So we get in touch with the Australian consulate, whole lot of stuff. He has to go down for three interviews, 
is. We're paying for his accommodation in Los Angeles. And finally, we're given the OK that he can return and play in Australia which is great news. So he's staying at, uh, at the Park Sunset on Sunset Boulevard. I ring up one night and I say, the night he's meant to be flying to Australia, and I say to the person at the front desk, you know, has Mr Whitley checked out? Yes. Uh, he goes, Good, he's on his way to Australia. Sir, I don't think he's coming to Australia. Why do you think he's not coming to Australia? Sir, he's only carrying a plastic shopping bag. Okay. His guitar, I should mention, has been lost somewhere on the first trip to New Zealand. So, all right. So, anyhow, as it turns out, he did arrive with only a plastic bag. But he got on the flight to go to, as you had to in those days, the plane stopped in Hawaii uh, and then continued from Hawaii on to Sydney. Chris Whitley calls me from Hawaii Airport. Stuart, there's a problem. I go, what's the problem, Chris? He said, I missed the flight. I said, you got to Hawaii and you've missed the flight. What happened? Uh, it was a bit of a hold-up. But what I find out, the hold-up was that he left the airport to smoke more joints and forgot that he had to go back in and get on a plane to come to Sydney. So eventually he arrives in Australia and, and he does, um, for the most part, a magnificent tour. I mean, an astonishing... It's the first time he came to Australia. You know, he died some years ago, but came back to Australia a bunch of times. You know, ma- magnificent performances, uh, except for the last night um, at the Three Weeds in uh, Balmain when he had been over in Bi- to the point that in the first 10 minutes of the show, he fell over three times and then went to punch me when I tried to pick him up because I'm just going, hey, dude, I'm just trying to help you actually get up. Uh, so, you know, he, he everywhere he went, he attracted a posse and uh, he was staying in Double Bay. Uh, he almost got thrown out of there one night after he had something like 20 or 30 people in his hotel room and the couple in the next room on their honeymoon were less than impressed at four o'clock in the morning with the raucousness. And, and I remember uh, I went to, to check him out uh, and, uh, and the person behind the desk said, oh, who's, who's taking care of his room service bill? And I said, look, you know, I will. He's oh, only, yeah. you know, this time he's only been here for a couple of days. You know, I'll put on a credit card and I'll get it back from him later. And she goes, sir, you do realise it's, it's $1,400. Oh, no. And I go, it's three or four days. You know, there's no way it can be $1,400. Let me look at that bill. <laughs> and I look at it. I still have it somewhere. And it was like, you know, breakfast, bacon and eggs and six bottles of house wine. You know, lunch, toasted sandwich, six bottles of house wine. You know, he'd run up this astronomically large uh, trip. So it was, it was Joey, you know, a, a great education into the world of, of, of international touring and just, you know, all of the things that you have to be prepared for. You think it's going to be straightforward. You know, you fly, you, you, you work out how much you're going to pay an artist, you fly them to Australia, they play a bunch of shows and you send them back again. You know, that's pretty straightforward. This might be a, a, an, an obvious question, but an important one nonetheless. What, what is it about rock and roll and addiction? Do you have any insight from your years working in the industry? Oh, look, I think it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's the lifestyle um, that, you know, it's been a performer, you know, I've just last year wrote a book about roadies and they, you know, have some of the same things, you know, it's, it's a very, it's, it's, it's a very surreal existence. Um, you know, there's something, of course, in the psyche of someone who um, has the both the desire and ability to get up in front of hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of people um, and sing their songs. There's something in the psyche of a person who can write the sort of songs that tens of thousands of people want to listen to. And it's surreal, you know, that you're away from home, keeping life together, all, all of those things, you know, combined, I think. 
Stuart, let's jump forward a few years to the late 80s. You, you get a tip-off that Harry Dean Stanton, the star of the definitive cult film Paris, Texas, and possibly the coolest man of the 20th century, has pulled together a band. How, how did you convince him to come to Australia? Yeah, Gerf Morlicks, who was playing guitar with Lucinda Williams, had been playing with Harry Dean. He said, look, you know, Harry's got this band. You know, Billy Swan, who wrote a great song called I Can Help, was, was in the band. You know, and, and he said, oh, Harry just, you know, goofs around and he plays it. There was a big thing in that era called cigar lounges, where people would go and smoke cigars. And Harry used to, with his band, they'd play in cigar lounges around Santa Monica in, in Los Angeles. Uh, but I had it in my head that, you know, yes, the coolest man on the planet, and that guy from Paris, Texas and Repo Man and everything, you know, should come to Australia and do a, and do a tour with his band. So, so Gerf gave me his number and, you know, well, in fact, gave Harry Dean my number. And one day I'm just sitting at home. I was living at Bondi at the time and the phone rings. I pick it up. Hey, Stuart, it's Harry Dean Stanton here. You know? <laughs> and, uh, so we went backwards and forwards for months, you know. He was really, you know, a highly intelligent man, but also very vague and very, um, you know, tangential in his, his thought processes and uh, uh, and it's getting a bit frustrating he sort of wants to come he sort of doesn't want to come you know he's not sure how many people will bring in his band and all this that's going on and at one point I said look Harry Dean come on you know like we really really need to sort this out you know uh, are you coming to Australia or not and it was one of the great confirmation lines of all time he said Stuart from this point in time, you can assume that you and I are riding together in one long black limousine. Oh. That, was, that was Harry Dean Stanton's way of saying yes. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> if there was a way that uh, Harry Dean Stanton was to agree to go on tour, I would, I would surely want it to be that. Yeah, uh, and how 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 was the tour? Was uh, look, it, it was it started fantastically. Uh, you know, everyone wanted a piece of Harry Dean. I mean, we played uh, a show in Balmain in a in a hotel, which. I won't mention because I think it was licensed to have 250 people. There was there was over 600 people in there that night, and it was a venue with no backstage. So it was a beautiful moment. So the artists have to actually come through the front door and walk through the crowd. And so I felt really sorry for the support act that night because Harry walks in and suddenly this entire room just rises to their feet and gives Harry Dean a standing ovation as he weaves his way through the the crowd out to the back. Uh, and then we played Paddington RSL and it was like. Like 12, 1300 people there. Michael Hutchins was there. Jenny Key was there. You know, everyone's wanting a piece of, of Harry Dean. Uh, and, you know, I mean, and, and his shows were good. They just weren't that great. Uh, and again, you ask about the old days of music journalism, but, you know, there, were, there was a review in the Sydney Morning Herald um, back when, you know, reviews could, you know, it was Bruce Elder, you know, who, who was a, is a fantastic writer and had the ability, you know, with one review to almost make or break a tour. You know, and he called it as he saw it, which was you know Harry Dean was endearing, and it was the guy from Paris, Texas. But you know, it it wasn't you two, and it wasn't Bruce Springsteen, and it wasn't Bob Dylan. You know, it, and, and and so you know, we found our, our crowds did drop off. But um, uh, I look for me, it was just you know I got to spend two and a half weeks with, as you say, the coolest man on the planet. Um, but then you know, I, I have a poster in my my hallway at home, which is signed by Harry Dean Stanton. 
important. And uh, and everyone looks at it and they go, wow, you got, you know, it says to Stuart, you know, thanks, Harry Dean Stanton, signed by LeBan. And I go, yep, that's the $25,000 poster. And they go, you paid that much? And I said, well, sort of did and sort of didn't. That's kind of what the tour lost. <laughs> so, but I ended up with a poster. <laughs> how, how best we tribute the coolest man of the 20th century in song? Uh, look, I think we, we go back to, uh, you know, him, him in, in Paris, Texas. That was what persuaded me to, you know, that I wanted to hear what else he would do. Uh, and, of course, he, he sang that song every night in the show, and that was, that was the moment when, you know, it, it all came together. Thank you. 
That was the main score of the cult film Paris, Texas, written and played by the legendary Ry Cooter. You are listening to Out of the Box on FBI Radio and wherever you get your podcast. My guest is Australian music industry icon Stuart Coop. Stuart, in the early 1980s, you slip your way into managing the era-defining Australian outfit, the Hoodoo Gurus, almost by default. How did that happen? Oh, there's no almost. Uh, it's totally, uh, <laughs> totally by default. Uh, you know, I've always realised that making a living just from writing in, in this or in any country is very difficult. So, you know, I, I was I was interested to learn all sorts of things about the music industry, but but band management was not something I'd considered at the time uh, until I, I lived near a bunch of uh, members of the Hooter Gurus, and uh, my friend Roger Grierson and I had he had a management he had a management. Company. Company, and we had an independent record label called Green Records. We were in Cathedral Street, Woolloomooloo, and we used to work in a window with lo- you know, lots of glass behind it, you know, a lot of glass, and people could see us as they walked past. Anyhow, one, one day one of the Huda Gurus members uh, knocks on the door. I knew them a little bit, and he said, Oh, Stuart, you know, every time we walk past, you know, you're always on the phone. You know, <laughs> everyone in the bands had their phone disconnected uh, for not paying their bills, which we all did at the time. And, uh, and, and then you get it reconnected under another name and uh, and so they said oh can we give you I think it was either 10 or 15 dollars a week which was you know a reasonable amount of extra money at the time to be a phone contact for us literally a way that people could could ring and, and all that so so it, look that evolved very quickly um, you know they, they were the band of the moment of course you know as, as an independent you know underground band um, were, you, were you aware of that I mean did you get a sense at that very early stage that the Hoodoo Gurus were, were going to be a defining band of the 80s oh look maybe not as big as they became you know I mean I loved them uh, and, and you know they were regulars at you know small parts Hubs, um, you know the early days of the Hoodoo Gurus. You know they were playing the Vulcan Hotel over in Ultimo. You know the Strawberry Hill Hotel in Surrey Hills. You know to in front of you know a hundred people, hundred and fifty, and then they graduated to the Sydney Trade Union Club uh, in Favot Street, Surrey Hills, to you know four hundred people. And so I loved them. You know I loved everything about them. Um, you know their stage presence, their songs. Uh, but no, I, I didn't have any. You know I don't think anyone had any sense that they were going to be you know, still around, still popular, and, and build up such a body of work. Was but, there a moment? Where, was there a moment where it kind of clicked? Like, hang on a second, I'm I'm onto something here. Oh, uh, look, we, we, when they were when they were signed to Big Time Records in Australia, and then via Big Time to A and M Records in Los Angeles, you know, in America, and that was like that was a big deal. Uh, and of course, you know, I was there. I only worked with them for one album. That was, of course, Stone Age Romeo's. I'm 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 good with that. You know, I still think that's the great Hootie Gurus record. They mm. made great record since, of course. Uh, and so, you know, Stone Age Romeos came out and the Hoodoo Gurus have a number one college radio record in America. That's like a number one community radio record back in the days when college radio was really, really important in America. So that's enough to mount a tour of America and, and the gurus. I didn't go on the whole tour. I went on some of it, but they, um, you know, this was a day before days before mobile phones or even fax machines were invented. So as a manager, you tended to stay in one place because you couldn't do much work, you know, in the van or on the bus because you had no communication with the outside world. So they did something from from memory about forty two dates in forty four or forty five days. A oh very goodness. very grueling tour, Not which unspeakably ambitious. Oh, it's. Started in started in LA, 
uh, sort of went down through Albuquerque, went up through Kansas City, up to Chicago, down to Boston, into New York, and turn around and and, and come back. It was it was incredibly um, grueling. And and look, I I knew nothing about management. I had I had a, a, an instinctual sense of what was fair and what wasn't fair, which I'd always had, um, and what represented a good deal and what didn't. But you know, I I was very naive, and I, I'm so glad that you know no record exist of you know me sitting down with um, with Herb Albert the great trumpeter and Jerry Moss who were the A and M in A and M Records um, discussing marketing plans. I didn't even know what a marketing plan was. <laughs> uh, so look, it was it was uh, it was a, a fantastic. Um, you know, again, it was time and place. I was, I, you know, there was no design. I was just a lucky guy who was a fan of a band who ended up working with them um, for about a year. And by the time that tour ended, you know, everyone was uh, was frazzled. Um, you know, they they were aware that they, if they were going to step up at that point, you know, they they needed more experienced people around them. I was not that person. You know, I, I was kind of upset at the time but um, you know in hindsight it made perfect perfect sense what they did and you know and we're, we're still friends and when I see them you know it's you know so um, but yeah. then, then of course um, yeah, for, from the, from the collapse of your relationship with the Hootie Goons, mm. you kind of fall headfirst into <laughs> managing perhaps even more iconic Paul Kelly. Just just this is just after he had moved to Sydney. Can you tell me about about how you first encountered Paul? Yeah, have I used the word lucky enough already? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, Joe. Look, I mean, Paul Paul was actually the very first attempt at an interview that I did, which was in July 1978 for an Adelaide magazine that I was also involved in starting called Preview. When I say attempt, um, Paul, Paul didn't say very much in those days. So, you know, but he, he was the first interview. Um, he was in a band then called the High Rise Bombers, before the Dots, before the Coloured Girls, who became the Messages. And... Uh, and we we got on well. I wrote um, some very glowing things about his first two records, Talk and Manila, and, and we kept in touch. Every time he came to Sydney, I'd go see him play. Uh, you know, so we, we had a pretty pretty friendly, you know, not overly close, but friendly relationship. And I just finished up with the Gurus. He had taken that infamous, you know, thirteen hours on the bus from St Kilda to Kings Cross wow. uh, trip, and yeah, possibly uh, he, the most uh, lyrically iconic <laughs> yes, uh, bus trip in Australian ever, history. Ever, <laughs> ever, ever. <laughs> Uh, and anyone who's done it would realise it's not nearly as glamorous <laughs> as that. Uh, and uh, he, uh, Paul called me up and he, he said, do you want to go and have a beer and have a bit of a chat? And um, I said, yeah, sure, that'll be fun. You know, so we um, we went to the Green Door Hotel in Victoria, corner of Victoria and Liverpool streets um, in the Cross. And he said, you know, do you, would you be interested in being my manager? You know, I had no forewarning that this was coming. And I'm kind of going sure, you know, and uh, and I said, you know, what do you what do you want to do? And uh, he said, oh, I've saved up fifteen hundred dollars. You know, I I want to make an acoustic single. And I remember very vividly saying, well, come back to my place. And I played him some acoustic albums by Chris Bailey from the Saints and Johnny Thunders. And I said, look, you know, it probably makes more sense to get together a little bit more money. And instead of doing an acoustic single, um, this being the early '80s, you know, I said, you know, make a make an album. Um, 
And he did, and that became post. That became post. Uh, which, you know, and, and then, you know, then I had the... I, then he decided he wanted to make a double album as his next record. Now, at this point, we've, we're three albums down the track. None of them have sold really well. So I'm dispatched to Melbourne to go and talk to the very, very formidable Michael Gadinsky and try and convince him that we should, you know, that he should fund a double album by Paul Kelly. And the short version is he kind of yelled and then laughed me out of the office, but I got in enough to say, well, how much will you give me to make a single album? And he said, I'll give you $60,000. Get out of here. And I said, well, if we make a single, a double album for $60,000, will you agree to sell it for the same price as a single album? Yeah, get out of here. So we made this album called, or Paul made this album, um, called Gossip for under $60,000. Michael was as good as his word. It was sold as a single album price and look it had those songs on it that started a career for Paul that it had before too long on it it had Darling It Hurts you know it, it had those now iconic songs that everyone erupts at his live shows when, when he plays those songs Was that apparent that, the, that, that these songs were going to be you know I, I mean part of the No uh, uh, No I, I remember saying to him when um when before too long, you know, was was a comparative hit. You know, it had only reached number fourteen nationally, but you know that was several thousand places higher on the charts than anything else. You know, Paul had done to that point, and uh, and I, I said to him, I kind of don't get it. You know, I said you've written so many, to my mind, better songs lyrically songs. You know, this is a pretty straight ahead pop song. Um, and it was a pretty straight ahead pop song, a great straight ahead pop song. And it was, I think it was the right, you know, luck does play such an important role in in careers. It was the right record at the right time for radio. Um, and there are so many other bands that, that I love from around that era, you know, the Triffids and the Go-Betweens, and I could go on for hours, Joey, you know, who didn't have the right song at the right time. Um, and so it was just where radio was at, you know, some of those big commercial radio networks, it fitted their format. Um, you know, Mushroom Records did a great job. Paul had an astonishingly terrific, you know, live band at the time. Uh, and it just it just worked. And lo and behold, we were signed to A&M Records. So I was back <laughs> with Herb Albert and, uh, and Jerry Moss. This time six years or seven years more experience. Uh, a few more years. Yeah. I, look, I, I, knew, I, I, I could not only spell marketing plan, but I had a bit of an idea of, uh, of, of what a marketing plan was and things like that. So... The song that you've elected to play us out with is um, Paul, Ke Paul Kelly's Careless. Can you tell me the story behind this one? Uh, yeah, look, Careless, uh, I'm, I'm very fond of this song. Uh, the first time I heard it was uh, in Paul's room at the Roosevelt Hotel on Hollywood Boulevard in Los Angeles. And we'd had a, a longish night of partying. And, uh, and I woke up sort of, I think, you know, mid-afternoon and I looked out my window and there was Paul already doing laps in the pool. And, uh, you know, he, liked, he was always like swimming. And, uh, and then, you know, I just lay there and some, something approaching a coma, I think. And, uh, and then I, he, he rang in my room and he said, come down here now. And there was a sort of tension in his voice. And I thought, golly, what... Did I say something wrong last night? You know, this doesn't sound good. And so I went down to his room, knocked on the door, and he just opened the door. And again, it, it didn't seem, it didn't feel friendly. And I thought, I'm about to get fired here. Uh, and, he, and he just said, sit on the bed. 
And I went, okay, okay, here it comes. Here it comes. And meanwhile, going, what, 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 what did we talk about last night? It can't have been really terrible. And he picks up a guitar, and uh, I'm sitting on the bed sort of semi-quaking, and he picks up his acoustic guitar, and he just starts singing, you know, how many, you know, cabs in New York City, how many tears and a bottle of gin, looked out the window, heard your name. You know, I've been careless. I lost my sense of tenderness. And that was the first time I, I heard heard careless and it took me back you know how many cabs in new york city because i was with him uh the first time he came he went to new york city which was a which was a complete dream for him you know and and look you know whether in any way it was inspired by that or not at all i don't know i remember distinctly that that night when he arrived in new york i said what do you want to do and he said just walk and we must have walked about 40 blocks that night we just walked but uh no that that moment of hearing um, careless, particularly combined with the fact that I thought my days as Paul Kelly's manager were about to come to an end, and to hear such a beautiful, um, you know, timeless is an overused word, but it's one of the songs that people always talk about when they talk about um, Paul Kelly. You know, under those circumstances, that was, that was a that was a pretty special moment. Stuart Coot, with that, I must say thank you very much for being my guest on Out of the Box today. It's been fun, Joey. Thanks. You were there, you held the line, you're the one that brought me.